welcome to the Unmistakably Magic Podcast. I am your host, Court, and this week I am joined by Wade, and we are going to jump into, or excuse me, dive into the history of one of our favorite attractions. That's right, we're talking about Splash Mountain. We're going to tell you all about why it had to be built a little bit of history beyond or even before when it was built and give you some backstory as to the the reasoning behind it was built as well as the fascinating history of the story that it revolves around or that it tells. Um, I am joined by Wade and, you know, this is a really interesting episode. This is the first history episode. Let me know what you think. And I am joined by Wade. Wade, thanks for coming on the show once again. It's been a long time. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, of course. How is this? Uh, how's this quarantine treating you? Um, you know, uh, got a three and a half year old at home, trying to teach, do distance learning teaching uh, to high school kids. Um, you know, I'm an extrovert by nature and being stuck in the house and not able to go interact with people teach kids uh go coach um because i coach basketball has definitely been a strain on my um emotional and physical well-being but you know i think we all do our best right now yeah yeah hanging in there kind of kind of learning to adjust trying to figure some stuff out um so can you give us a little bit of, of background on, on your love of history and your love of the parks? Uh, you mentioned that you're a teacher uh, and you're a, a history teacher, correct? Yeah, um, history teacher, social studies is my, you know, background as a general, but history um, is definitely my, um, is a passion of mine. Um, I love you know, studying the past and, um, you know, thinking about, you know, why people make decisions they do and how that interlays with others socially, economically, et cetera. Um, And in terms of the parks, um, you know, one of my earliest memories is my parents putting me on a scavenger hunt uh, for my, I think it'd be like sixth birthday. I was in kindergarten. for a birthday present, we went to Disney World in Florida to the beaches. Um, that was oh, the wow. first time I'd ever been, um, and so that's one of my earliest memories, uh, like vivid memories at least, was kind of that scavenger hunt and finding out that I was going to go to Disney World. Um, that's awesome. Found out the last piece of the yeah, the last piece of the scavenger hunt was putting in a um, the Disneyland sing along videos. If people remember those, um, <laughs> and um, you know, then just spent, um, a lot of my life, you know, loving Disney, loving Disney movies. Um, and then when I met my wife in high school, uh, her family were all, um, Disney fanatics. Um, and so it was, it was a match something. made in heaven. It was a match made in heaven and, <laughs> or in Disney, right? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, we got engaged in Disney World, honeymoon to Disney World. 
Um, you know, our first vacation ever together was um, to Disneyland when I graduated high school. Um, and so especially our love um, has really grown um, in our times in the Disney parks and, you know, enjoying that aspect of our lives together. Um, and then it all kind of comes full circle. Our um, son Mason, uh, once again, is three and a half. Um, his, one of his favorite videos right now is, um, as we were talking about earlier, uh, is the Disneyland sing-along video. He loves to watch it on YouTube and, you know, we go on walks and he's singing walking right down the middle of Main Street USA. And um, he loves to sit and watch like the ride videos, especially right now since we're telling him we're gonna go to Disney World here in November, hopefully. Um, but he doesn't understand obviously what we can't go right now. So we've got to watch right. Dumbo and all that on the TV. So <laughs> gotta that's get a little that bit Disney of my background. I mean, right? It's, um, I mean, I, I don't know if you remember this, but when you went with a group of high school friends at the end of high school, when you guys all went, um, one of your buddies who we'd all tried to explain to him what it was like. And he was like, I, you know, I just, I don't know. I think it just sounds like a tourist trap or, you know, any of those other things. Nope. Do you remember what he came back and told me? Because I'm sure he told you the same thing. I I don't you know? think he ever told me anything. Oh, he, so he so. came back. He came back and told me because um, before he went to school, I had uh, like breakfast with him one time, and he looked at me. He's like something along the lines of it was like taking like a shot of. I can only imagine it was like taking you know like a shot of cocaine or heroin right to your blood <laughs> veins or something like that. <laughs> And talking about talking about going to the parks, he finally understood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was like he, he was like it was it was like a joy that you know those of us who you know love the theme parks, you, you can explain it to people who, especially who haven't been, and people oh, yeah. who who even who don't like it. It's it's impossible to really get through to them what it means to you when you love it that much. But we'll keep trying, darn it, won't we? <laughs> I mean, that's why we're here to some degree, right? Yeah, you know. Um, so obviously Disney has been a massive, massive part of your history and you are a big fan of history. So we figured, why not talk about history? And we were trying to figure out what to talk about, um, kind of if we wanted to talk about an attraction or some land or even like a park in general. And um, you had thrown out a couple of attractions. And one of the ones that you wanted to talk about was Splash Mountain. And I didn't know a whole lot of the history of Splash Mountain. I knew that it just, it just didn't get talked about a whole lot. Um, but holy cow, it's actually really interesting. Yeah. Uh, when, one of the reasons I wanted to or that it came to mind was as I'm sure you know I know you have and maybe a good amount most of the people who might listen to this podcast have watched the Disney Imagineering series on Disney Plus and it, they gloss over it in comparison to a lot of the other early attractions and obviously as we'll find out it's not one of the earliest 
Um, but they kind of gloss over it when, as we find out, it has a pretty deep, rich, and by rich, I mean also expensive history. <laughs> That's very <laughs> true. <laughs> no, yeah, and and it's it's kind of fascinating to me how much time they spent in that series on so many other things when some very big and beloved attractions like Splash Mountain um, really didn't get a whole lot of attention. And so that's awesome that you brought that up and, and I'm glad that we're talking about it because I didn't even think about that until you just mentioned it right now. Um, but let's, let's jump right into the history of Splash Mountain, which actually starts back in March of 1972 when Disneyland opened up Bear Country. And Bear Country was located alongside the western banks of the rivers of America. And the new land uh, boasted new launching points for the Mike Fink keel boats, which, you know, I thought were going to come back with Galaxy's Edge in the, in, the, um, in the original concept art of it, of Galaxy's Edge. There was a, a keel boat floating along in the river. And I was really hoping to get one of those back, but... We haven't seen them back yet. We haven't seen a return yet. Um, it also had the, the launch of the Davy Crockett Explorer Canoes, uh, part of a fort to be explored, an arcade. It had the mile long bar, uh, the Golden Bear Lodge for all of you hungry bears out there, and the new e-ticket attraction, Country Bear Jamboree. Um, did you ever get a chance to, to, to experience Country Bear Jamboree uh, at Disneyland? Um, I don't think I did. Uh, um, and which makes me sad because I do enjoy Country Bear Jamboree, especially when we go to um, Disney World, um, despite the fact that it makes us laugh that it was ever maybe considered a family attraction based on some of the theming of uh, some of the songs and things like that. Um, yes. Also to think of it, <laughs> to think of it, you know, almost, almost 50 years later now, as an e-ticket attraction, uh, um, it, which it was. I mean, for the time, you know, it's revolutionary, but it's just funny to think about it in that way. How, I mean, the e-ticket attraction is was was a very loose term back in the day. I think it, it definitely has shifted more towards a, a more appropriate um, classification nowadays, I would say. Um, but the Country Bear Jamboree, it was so popular and, and Bear Country saw a very consistent flow of, of visitors and guests. And over in Tomorrowland, uh, things weren't really going as well. And with the success of Country Bear Jamboree, Disney moved the Carousel of Progress over to them and Disney moving the Carousel of Progress uh, over to the Magic Kingdom in Orlando. And they put a new show in its place, uh, America Sings opened in 1974 and took the success of an audio animatronic musical show to new heights. Uh, this thing was, it was crazy. There were so many audio animatronics um, and it was a huge hit at first. And, but times changed and with the success of parks like Magic Mountain and the opening of the American Revolution, which is the first modern 360 degree looping roller coaster in the world. And over at Knott's Berry Farm, with the opening of Corkscrew in 1975, which is the first modern-day roller coaster to have a 360-degree inversion twice, 
attendance at Disneyland started to, to decline. It, it was dwindling a little bit and people craved thrills and Disneyland could only deliver with the Matterhorn bobsled, which was a tame attraction in comparison to those found right down the road at Knott's and a little bit farther away at, at Magic Mountain. Um, at I just, Disneyland- I, I, I guess I, sorry. Um, I guess I just wonder what made them think right that putting an audio animatronic show in Tomorrowland was gonna be the draw because <laughs> I mean right does that make sense because it doesn't make sense to me that you have Tomorrowland and that you think you're gonna capitalize on a show that's working in you know the frontier land basically right i mean in the country right you know in bear country but right next to frontier land and whatever that show and maybe type of show made sense to me for that area it doesn't make sense as much for Tomorrowland to have something like this well if you if you jump back into the early 70s of uh disneyland history over in tomorrowland there really wasn't a whole lot going on i mean there were there was autopia uh, the subs were going, but this was before Star Tours. Um, there was a mission to to Mars. I believe that attraction, I, I don't know if that one was still open at that time. I'm sure it was. Um, actually, I think it, it definitely was because I think that was right around the time when it was converted from the mission to the moon to mission to Mars. Um, and that was really about it. I mean... I guess Adventure Through Inner Space was still around, but you didn't really have a whole lot of long attractions that, that really took people and, and was, a, was a people eater attraction. And so I think that was more of the rationale behind it of we have the space, um, Carousel of Progress is kind of old news now. Uh, it's no longer like a view of the, the near future. We're, we're progressively getting there. Um, and Magic Era and Magic Kingdom, yeah, needed something over in their Tomorrowland. So I think the the whole thought process behind bringing America Sings in there was to to make sure that people spend a little bit more time in Tomorrowland because it had a similar time time duration as the Carousel of Progress, which it's not a very short short show, um, but it. it it seemed to work. I, I do agree with you, though. Like, why why singing animals? What what is <laughs> what is up with that? Why didn't we get like a version of like the Timekeeper or something? Or yeah, I don't know. Like, it, some mysteries will remain a mystery as to why they they ultimately decided with singing animals about American history in Tomorrowland, where it's supposed to be all about the future other than they had the space and they had the, um, the theater for it. Um, but Disneyland had to make a thrill attraction and America Sings obviously wasn't cutting it and they had to make it fast. And the answer was actually kind of already from 1975, it was two years away, but it was, uh, oh no, it was, it was actually built um, in 1975 in the Magic Kingdom and it was Space Mountain. Uh, which opened in 1975, and it was a huge hit. Disneyland made a smaller copy of the popular roller coaster and put it in Tomorrowland in 1977. 
and the public loved it and park officials took note. Disneyland then opened Big Thunder Mountain Railroad over in Frontierland in 1979, once again to great success. But the success of both of these thrill rides wasn't without a price. People no longer wanted to sit in a room and watch animals sing and dance in place. They wanted to go to outer space or ride on a runaway train through old mine caverns. And attendance at the Country Bear Jamboree and at American Sings really, really started to take a hit. They declined very rapidly. And there wasn't a reason really to visit Bear Country anymore. And even that side of the park started to look like a ghost town. And speaking of a ghost town, over at Knott's, they had seen their log flume attraction that opened up in 1969 become extremely popular. And Magic Mountain has had one since 1972. And Disneyland pretty much created a problem internally and it needed a solution. They, they pushed so many people away from this one section of the park that it became so underutilized. And I don't know about you, but I honestly would have loved to go to Disneyland before the solution was created and just look and see how, how desolate that part of the park was. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me of, you know, before they start doing, you know, all the construction on Galaxy's Edge. And one of the last times we were there um, was before they started construction was uh, towards Halloween time and, you know, back by like the petting zoo and things like that. And, you know, talk about a ghost town. Oh, nope. yeah. <laughs> and I remember lots of people being upset even then. And right that they're getting rid of this thing that had existed for some time and um you know that it meant also obviously rerouting changing the train and stopping the train and you know but this idea of progress and moving forward that obviously was at the heart of disneyland and wall stream from the beginning um that once again didn't make sense how they made some of these decisions before um but would make a lot more sense moving forward right right i i didn't even think about um Gosh, what was that called? The the petting zoo over there that the I don't even remember what it was called. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't remember. Uh, but even on the I I do remember that even on the busiest of days, you could go over there and there'd be maybe a handful of people over there. Um, most big, of which Big Thunder Ranch. Big Thunder Ranch, right? Um, most of which most of which were just getting the barbecue that was right there as well. Um, <clears throat> And so Disney's solution to this problem uh, was bringing in a young Imagineer named Tony Baxter. And him and his team created this concept called zippity doo Dah River Run. And can we just imagine if Splash Mountain is now called zippity doo Dah River Run? How big of a tongue twister is that? It's, you know, it's a tongue twister and... <laughs> It's, you just it, think though, does, like, it, does that become does that become the long like one of the longest attraction names that isn't actually really saying anything? <laughs> I mean, it's a river run, so kind of says something, but no, it totally would be. I think the well, only longer longer attraction names are like Star Wars Millennium Falcon Smugglers Run or. Uh, like Star Wars Rise of the Resistance. I think Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run is just the longest name that anyone has created. Or but what's even there, the... 
but even there, right, you have like a, a franchise name or something attached to it, right? And we, we'll talk about a little bit about obviously zippity doo dah later, um, a little bit more, but um, you know, where this comes from and things like that. But it, it's just so funny kind of the, the naming that that's where they start from. Right, right. And, and obviously, Michael Eisner thought a similar thing. Um, and so the log flume attraction that told the story of Song of the South was to be placed in the barren bear country. And the project began construction in 1987 and had amassed a $75 million price tag, which with inflation, that was a mere $5 million less than the construction of the entire Disneyland park. That is a hefty, hefty price tag. That is nuts. Um, I mean, and in order, this is what, this is what we talk about, right? It's huge. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge amount of money that they pump in for this one attraction to try to compete, arguably once again, right, with the other, you know, theme parks of the area. Right. Right, and, and we still see this to this day. I mean, the whole revamp of California Adventure was well, like $1.6 billion. I'm just throwing that number off the top of my head. I could be completely wrong, but I know it was well over a billion dollars. And that was to, not that wasn't even building a new, a new uh, theme park. That was just fixing one that was broken. Yeah. Um, and Galaxy's Edge had a, a very hefty price tag as well. That was well over a billion dollars if a I... A billion. Yeah. Yeah, something like that as well. And that's for two attractions and some shops at this point. So, <laughs> like, when it, when it comes down to it at its bare bones, yes, it's highly immersive, and Splash Mountain is no... So incredibly immersive, and that was in part due to honestly budget cuts. Um, the only way, actually, that Splash Mountain could be built and the project could move forward, or at this point, Zippity Doo Dot River Run could move forward, um, was to close the struggling America Sings and take the animatronics from that attraction over to Zippity Doo Dot River Run. And that is so funny to me. Like you have this attraction over in Tomorrowland, and it brings up what, what you were you were saying earlier. You have this attraction in Tomorrowland that honestly doesn't really fit there. The the main show elements would fit in way better over in Frontierland or over in Bear Country, and Disney saw that the Imagineer saw that, and they said, "Look, this is how we're doing it. We're not we're we're taking this attraction that obviously we got wrong or." The, the placement of it at least was wrong. So let's put it at somewhere where we can actually use it and where it makes sense. Um, and I think and then, this speaks to, I think this speaks to Eisner's vision also that we saw from this time period as CEO period, right? That Eisner from the beginning of taking over was about taking chances. Um, whether it was about buying different film studios or TV show, TV stations or, you know, whatever it was that Eisner was a risk taker and that often these risks took off. That's true. That's very true. And speaking of Eisner, the then CEO of the Disney Corporation, Michael Eisner, he wanted to change the name to Splash Mountain in order to promote the upcoming film Splash, which have you have you seen this film? 
I, they uh, recently got put up on Disney Plus. No, I haven't. And I saw when they put it up on. I saw when they put it up, and I thought that you know I should maybe go check it out. Um, have you seen it? I I haven't. I've seen a couple previews for it. Um, I've read a plot synopsis, and it this film has absolutely nothing to do with Song of the South uh, or animation. <laughs> or really anything that Splash Mountain is known for, except uh, water. And that's literally it. And if that isn't the funniest way that a really world famous and beloved attraction got its name, I don't know what is. See, my question though is, so Splash was a Touchstone Pictures film, and I'd have to go back and look exactly when Touchstone um, and Disney join, but it's sometime in the Eisner run. And so I wonder if this was maybe the fir- also the first film that Touchstone puts out under like the Disney Corporation. Uh, um, that's the only other thing I can think also, that it just created that extra little, you know, incentive for them to do this. Uh, that's, that's a possibility. Um, I know that around that time, the the parks were being viewed more as as less less as cool and less as fun and more for just like little kids and so having that touchstone kind of relation uh definitely could have promoted a little bit more of that kind of teenager we're we're a little more edgy because touchdown does create a little more films geared a little bit more towards the older audience um yeah that disney was really known for and I'm sure that that definitely had had something to play uh, in the ultimate renaming of it, unless it was truly just Eisner being in there and, you know, highest paid guy in the room gets to make all the decisions, right? Yeah. Um, So Splash Mountain had a planned opening of July 17th, 1989. However, when early riders were plummeting down the 52 and a half foot drop at 45 miles an hour, the wave of water at the base of the drop flooded the logs and forced the redesign of the log boats. And they actually touched on this in, in the Imagineering story. And it was so cool to see the behind the scenes look on how they redesigned the logs. Um, where at first they, they didn't have the little lip underneath. It was just a flat log and the wave would just be so ginormous and, and come over and completely soak everybody and even more so than you than you get now and so it was cool to see the process of kind of making a mock model making a model testing it testing it on a small scale and then scaling it up and the attraction was a huge hit when it when it reopened when it ultimately opened up i guess officially and guests filled the newly named critter country uh, once again uh, Magic Kingdom and Tokyo Disneyland both got versions of the attraction, both of which opened in October of 1992, with Magic Kingdom's version opening on the 2nd of October and Tokyo's opening on the 1st of October. And there was a Disneyland Paris version planned. Um, however, that was cut due to budget cuts and not being able to operate throughout the entire year because as we all know, it, it snows in Paris a little more frequently, and the weather isn't quite as nice as the other resort locations. Um, but so I've never really delved into 
the history of uh, Song of the South and the Uncle Raymond stories. I've, I remember reading parts of them when I was a kid, when I was growing up, but I don't really under, I don't really know all of the history of it. And you do though, you, you've done some research and um, you're going to tell us a little bit about the full history of the stories that, that inspired this attraction. Yeah, so, you know, this has just been something that's, you know, both from a historical lens, um, especially of U.S. history, um, for me that I found super interesting um, when thinking about Disney history and, you know, the controversies that sometimes have um, surrounded, you know, Walt himself or the organization, the company, um, especially in, you know, the 21st century when, we have a different lens of how we look back on, you know, time periods. Um, and we look back on what's considered appropriate or, um, you know, correct, politically correct, if you will. Um, and so the, the ride draws, right, it's inspiration from the 1946 song, The South, um, which was one of these early Disney films that draws on both live action and cartoon elements. Um, we think back to probably one of the most famous being Mary Poppins. Um, and while certain elements of the movie have lived on positively in the minds of viewers and Disney park aficionados, um, especially obviously those of Splash Mountain, um, Disney has struggled to defend at times some of the controversial choices that were made in the film, which is why you can't find this film anywhere. Um, can't you can't you find it in like the UK? Wasn't it released there on VHS or something of that sorts? Um, it, it never got an American release. But I think yes. over in like England, you can find it, or I might be mistaken on that. Um, I don't know about England or the UK, but definitely in some other countries they have. Um, not in the United States, and you know, which obviously has to do with um, a little more the backstory of how it comes. Um, and you can find, um, you know, some pirated versions on places like YouTube. Uh, um, maybe not full films and broken up, obviously, in different parts. Um, right. But. Um, I think it was actually Eisner who, when the film, when the ride is coming out, basically states, no, you won't ever see, you know, this actual movie that, though, in homes at that point, VHS, and obviously later on DVD or on Disney Plus. Um, so set in the reconstruction south, although that's not ever specifically stated in the film, uh, the film follows the experience of a seven-year-old Johnny, um, who goes to his grandparents' plantation in Georgia, um, and specifically the interactions he has with um, this African-American, Uncle Remus, um, who's played by the actor James Gaskett. Um, James Gaskett has um, a telling life story of his own that could be its own podcast. Um, one of the more interesting things um, about him, well, one of the more interesting things about him is that he got some of his first entertainment um, opportunities working with, um, Sacha with um, Louis Armstrong um, uh, making really? music um, in the 1920s. Yeah, so he played in a band uh, with him um, in the 1920s before um, Louis Armstrong got super big and popular, um, but definitely when he was kind of um, on the up and coming. Um, 
And so, huh. and so Basket has, um, if we go back and look at his own history, actually a pretty rich history in kind of the early African-American entertainment scene of the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, the okay. film centers then on his character, Uncle Remus, um, and is a film adaptation of the Uncle Remus stories, which were written by Joel Chandler Harris in 1881, post-Civil um, War, in kind of post-Reconstruction South. And this is where some of the controversies are going to come up. Um, these center story primarily on Br'er Rabbit um, and many of the other characters we see in the rides, like Br'er Fox um, and Br'er Bear. Um, the origin of this stories come even further from a lot of the African-American folklore and fables, many of which can be even traced back to West Africa, um, where most of you know, the American slaves are brought from during the 16 and 1700s. Um, do you know what Br'er is supposed to reference? I actually do not. I, I always thought it was just like a briar, like briar patch. Um, so... So that's what I thought too for a long time, um, but actually, um, it's a it's a kind of shortened version of the dialect um, that Harris was trying to recreate in his writing uh, to adapt, which a lot of people celebrated him for, praised him for early on, um, was that he had done in their eyes a strong job of depicting the Negro language of the South um, and of the plantations. Um, and so actually it's like brother rabbit or brother fox or brother bear um, is what it's actually like a shortened version of. That's fascinating. That kind of changes the attraction a little bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, like if everybody's calling each other brother, brother bear, brother fox, brother rabbit, like why are, why is Br'er Fox trying to get Br'er Rabbit then if they're trying to be, you know, because that, that, that's normally like something that you would, you would say to somebody that you really respect or have a, a great affinity for. Yeah. Um, and so I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure 100% where that use comes for all the characters. Um, you know, if you will look up some of the shortened versions, some of the other versions are uh, like Bruh Rabbit or Bruh Bear, um, like okay. B-R-U-H. Uh, yeah. um, but this is how he this is how he chose uh, Joel Han Chandler Harris specifically when he wrote these stories in the 1880s to um, try and write this um, you know Negro dialect um, of the time period um, as best he could and once again while people to some degree celebrated it um, and even to this day say that you know, this is one of the first examples we have of African-American folklore, of African-American fables, of, you know, uh, these t this time period. At the same time, not surprisingly, his choice of, um, you know, doing that and possibly appropriating, becoming profitable from their language, from their stories, um, it became problematic. Uh, um, likewise, um, and it should be, I think it should be made clear that this wasn't a decision for people listening to this in 2020 or, you know, sometime onward. This wasn't a decision that was recently or an opinion that was recently based. As early as the 19-teens, um, we can see literary, um, literary critiques of these choices. And so these choices were being questioned or, um, you know, critiqued early on. Uh, 
outcome and how he chose to do this. And so while these origins, right, um, it's a lot of these parts of the origins that make Song of the South controversial for many. Um, a lot of people um, have also pointed out that the film, once again, and you know, we can go deep into how the film also has a long litany of changes in writers and producers, um, many of which were challenging the issues that they felt were coming up and trying to recreate these stories. Um, one of the main contextual parts of the film that many have critiqued is that once again isn't made super clear in the film that we're living in the post-Reconstruction South or even post-Civil War South. Um, and that since we are set on a plantation in the South, it is never made 100% clear in the film to what extent we're living outside of the time of slavery or not. And also that almost all the African-Americans within the context of the film seem to be happy, celebratory of their situation, whether that be, once again, without more contextualization within the film, whether they are slaves or sharecroppers within their what appears to be obvious subordinate position within the society to the white plantation owners of the film. And so this has become one of the major critiques of the film at the time, is that it seems to maybe glorify um, the subordination of African-Americans within the South. Okay, so is that why, um, is that why you think like the, the film will never be released, however it will still always kind of live on because of Splash Mountain, because of all these critiques of it's not made clear, it's not it's not defined as to where exactly we are in history or like what exactly is going on. I think that's a big part of it. Um, I think that, you know, one of the changes that was made when um, the, when the story Stories of Rear Rabbit and um, these Uncle Remus stories were recreated, republished, um, rewritten um, when some of the first challenges and critiques of uh, Harris's work were being done in the 19-teens and 1920s. One of the first changes that was made in the recreation of those stories by other literary um, writers of the time were um, folklore, um, you know, uh, authors who were you know, republishing or however you want to put it, these works, one of the things they specifically did was took out the elements of like Uncle Remus as a storyteller or as a person in um, the context of the stories and rather just focused purely on the character cartoon elements, much like we have within the ride, right? Within the ride, we are just existing within what appears to be a cartoon world. We're not existing within a um, storyteller telling us about these people and their creation. We're actually stepping into that world, um, which right. is why I think maybe they were willing to take that separation of, while it draws on inspiration, yes, of quote, Son of the South in terms of, you know, the look that we have of these characters or whatever it might be, it was also taking, once again, something that had already existed within literary canon before this um, as many other Disney you know properties have and twisted it to use it in a way that was not per se as controversial um, okay one of the other reasons one of the other things that 
um, or reasons that people have assumed maybe that Son of the South had a more um, negative reaction was that um, James Baskett wasn't allowed to attend the premiere of the film, which many saw and assumed based on some questionable other issues of the Disney um, you know, brand at the time, um, the, the charges towards Walt Disney and the company of being racist that once again maybe profit profiteering off of African-Americans at the time period, um, you know, of one of these first films that had an African-American actor as basically a lead, um, but not allowing him to attend the premiere. But, but for the most part, history tells us this, this was not a choice that Disney made. It was rather had to do with the segregation laws of Atlanta where the film premiered um, due to the fact that the film was shot in and set in Georgia. Um, and that rather, rather, Walt from the very beginning had been an advocate for Baskin, um, that he had advocated for him to take the role, that he wanted to have someone who, you know, really felt like they fit um, the storyline. If I remember correctly, Baskin actually originally was brought in um, to possibly even just do some of the voicing for some of the um, uh, cartoon characters. And actually they choose him then also to be the lead actor for it. Um, oh, wow. And then Walt also advocates for him then to actually get the Academy Award, get an Oscar for his portrayal of Uncle Remus. Um, and so he becomes the first African-American to win an Oscar in 1948, um, but then sadly dies six roughly six months later um, due to some uh, complications from diabetes and heart issues, which had plagued him for most of his life. So, so he actually won the first Oscar um, ever for an African-American uh, because of Song of the South, correct? Yeah, correct. Um, and I can't remember exactly, um, I think it's possibly like an honorary Oscar. I don't think he's given like, you know, um, male actor of the year, or actor of the year, or anything like that, but um, is right. given, you know, a specific um, Oscar purely for his portrayal, um, which Disney had articulated he deserved partially because he was given so little direction in his acting for the film. Um, so much of it came from what appeared to be, you know, a deep connection himself possibly to these stories and, you know, the Uncle Remus background, because once again, these were part of the African-American folklore for generations, um, even going back to, once again, many of the tales that come from West Africa. Okay. Wow. That's, that's so cool. That, that's that's kind of shocking that actually so much of this history is kind of just glossed over because because you can't really see the film really at all and the only connection that most people nowadays have with it is uh through splash mountain and there's so much history behind the whole story of the attraction that you know should probably be shared a little bit more than just on an occasional podcast episode here or there I, I agree, obviously. <laughs> um, it, 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 and part of it makes me wonder, you know, in, in doing the research and digging more into it, right? It, like many of the other um, decisions that we make today, looking back on our history, it kind of becomes a question of how much do we, for the lack of better words, we're, you know, re revision history or um, erase history versus, you know, really delve into the depths of this um, because once again if you go back and look at the time period and even today 
there are a lot of African-Americans who view this film with reverence that just like many other films of the time period, it has obviously its struggles or issues and things that we can critique, but at the same time, was one of the first to use and celebrate African-American actors to put them at the forefront of the story, especially something that was going to be, you know, provided to mainstream audiences by a major, um, you know, film studio at the time. It wasn't being done, you know, by a film studio that maybe was only being allowed to put out African-American films or something like that. Um, right. And so it has a deep reverence to some degree within the African-American community, um, depending on especially their knowledge of, you know, maybe some of the critiques or controversies with it. And it just makes me think when we have these theme parks that I especially think of places in Hollywood studios, uh, um, you know, back in at World, not at Land, um, but really a lot of these places that exist within the theme parks to tell the history of the theme park that could this not be something that somehow exists within especially I think about Disneyland that back corner of Critter Country that there is some open space there that you could maybe have some type of you know small museum that kind of celebrates the history of this of this you know storytelling and where it comes from um, because to some degree it is a celebration of the African-American experience and storytelling of this country um, despite the flaws that maybe the film that was created to use those had. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would be incredible if, if something like that even came up. But it seems like Disney is just so, quote-unquote, ashamed of this this movie and this property, even though it, it does have a lot of um, positive history alongside all of the, the criticisms and the backlash for it. Um it would really be very interesting to see see if Disney has any kind of, I don't know, would like to do any kind of um, celebration of, of what came out of this movie. Because um, it is a very historical movie, not just for the theme parks through Splash Mountain and what that did for themed attractions. I mean, you want to talk about one of the greatest themed attractions ever built? It's, it's because of this movie right here. Uh, but for the African-American community and for Hollywood in general, um, it's just, it's crazy that, that so much of this history is just not brought to light in, in, a, in a bigger and better way and that, that Disney doesn't necessarily bring it out as much as probably they could or even should. Exactly. And, and you know, obviously, I can't speak, we can't speak for you know, the communities that are affected most by maybe the negative portrayal of, you know, their people in, um, in a film like this. But I, I think it talks to, you know, it speaks to the greater need, I think, sometimes within this country to have, you know, a deeper understanding of, of our history and, you know, of understanding where people have been wronged and, you know, how we can celebrate while also um, trying to become better. Um, and like you said also, right, that when I think of when I think of the parks and my favorite attractions, Splash Mountain is always somewhere towards the top of the list. Um, right, it's and, one of those attractions that you have to ha that you have to ride at least once when you when you go whenever you make a trip out there. And, and and not only one for me, it's it's something that I always want to ride. 
you know, first, especially for me. Now that I have a kid, you know, obviously, you know, we're going to go probably on things like Dumbo and things like that initially. Um, it changes it a little bit. But <laughs> yeah, but, but for me, when I think of if I'm going to the parks, especially if I'm not worried about getting, you know, wet at rope drop or whatever, right. um, if it's warm enough, getting on like Splash Mountain first thing, it, it just, it, it takes me to a happy place. Um, there's just something yeah. special about that ride, about the theming. And one of the reasons I think, right, is because, and this kind of goes back to the beginning of the pod, the, um, I guess two things actually. One, that it's this log flume ride, which you can see it even, it, maybe not your average, but above average, like traveling fare, you know, uh, you know, that comes through your town. You know, you yeah. go to state yeah, fair, you a, might see a cheap version of some type of log flume ride. Um, right. It's it's a very basic and I I would argue overly used uh, ride system, and they're everywhere. And yeah, like it at at its core, it's it's a log flume. <laughs> but once again, it, it's that Disney magic that most other companies in the industry can't even come close to touching. Um, so I think that part for me is what makes it so special. Uh, right. The second part is when I think back to some of my favorite trips to Walt Disney World, uh, when I used to do the um, magic hours till two o'clock in the morning sometimes, and we would get on Splash Mountain and we would ride it five, six, seven, eight times in a row before we'd even have to get off because there wouldn't be anyone in line at one o'clock in the morning, right? To yeah. get on this ride where you're going to get wet. <laughs> Um, and so I think there's something, I, something about that too, of being on the ride and, you know, one, the story, and then two, you climb to the top of the apex before that last 50 plus foot drop. And you can see like the entire park, um, at least the entire, obviously magic kingdom. Um, yeah. there's something special about it. That's true. And, and I don't know about you, but having understood a little bit more about the history of the origin of um, Splash Mountain and and the story that it tells, I think next time that I'm gonna be able to write it, it's it's gonna have a different kind of meaning to me. It's gonna be much more of American history and much more about about a story that got people through a really really hard and dark time in history. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, is there anything else that you would like to add? Um, the only thing that I thought, you know, doing uh, research this that I thought was interesting, it's just, you know, a stupid fun fact or whatever, is that the Disney World version is the shortest by length of ride um, in terms of like track length but is okay. like the longest actual timed ride, I think. Or maybe I actually just got that backwards. Oh, that's interesting. I, 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 I'm pretty sure it is the longest time. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 pretty sure it's, goes... I'm pretty sure it's the longest. Yeah. 
duration of the attraction. I wonder why that is. Is it is it just because the water flows at such a slower rate? <laughs> it, it 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 must be because yeah, as I'm doing you know great quick Wikipedia search. Yeah, it's the longest duration right. by by Disney. It beats Disneyland by almost two and a half minutes. Um, but the Disneyland it is version substantially is like forty longer. feet longer. Oh, that's yeah. that's interesting. That's crazy. Because, I mean, I, I know the, the Magic Kingdom version is, like, ten and a half minutes or something like that. Or over ten minutes. Uh, um, yeah. And the Disneyland, so that means Disneyland's version is, like, eight minutes. Yeah, it's, like, nine versus, like, eleven and a half, eleven forty-five. The Tokyo oh, version, wow. the Tokyo version supposedly comes in at exactly ten minutes. Um, <laughs> which is which is interesting um i'd be interested now that actually makes me want to research more about um tokyo and other asian disney park ride lengths to see if they are like perfect or tend to be more like perfect numbers or lengths for some reason and tend to be more more whole even yeah quote unquote uh a time period that'd be that'd be an interesting study figure out all the, the exact also, ride durations of everything and look and see cross-reference everything see where it's all at um yeah well so I you wonder... threw out an interesting fact i think i can throw out an interesting fact um so the while they were building while they were designing and constructing um the splash mountain in disney world at magic kingdom and in tokyo they were designing them at the same time um and they used a very similar i guess it's not exact because they came out different lengths and different durations um but because of tokyo's uh culture or the culture over in, in japan and in tokyo um it is not polite to sit in single file behind people so that's why they have the side-by-side seating it's it wasn't a capacity thing um it was probably more so a capacity thing over at disney world but I imagine it was just easier to to kind of cut costs and just say, hey, look, we have, we've already designed the boats, we've redesigned everything, it increases capacity, that's just another bonus, but let's just use that over at Magic Kingdom right now. Um, so that's why you, you Disneyland is the only one that has uh, inline seating. I wonder if that has something to do with the Disneyland one being, also being faster, if that creates less drag on the boat or something like that since it's a skinnier vehicle a less width vehicle well, at a minimum engineering words might help here <laughs> yes the the um the boat could be a little more buoyant which which would cause it to uh have less of a drag coefficient within the water or less of a drag force in the water and that that probably is a pretty big factor in it um, assuming that the whole pumping system is all the same and, and the flow of the, the standing water, the flow of water without boats in it is, is the same across all of them. That would, that would probably be a, a, actually a very straightforward answer as to why Disneyland's is so much shorter in duration than all of the other ones. The Disneyland one also has less drops, which probably affects the amount of time it takes to pull you up on those drops. Uh, right, that's like true. The change of the... So that's probably that's true. Too. But yeah. Doesn't um, no, doesn't, Disney, fact. doesn't Disney World have 
the most drops? Or is it Tokyo's? Yeah. Disney yeah, World has like oh, has the most. Okay. Five. Oh man, and Disneyland so has four, Disneyland three. Three? Yeah. Three. Yeah. So. And yet you always seem to get the wettest on the the roller coaster hill drop, as I like to call it. Where you go down into the laughing yes. place and then up back and then down and just the ricochet of water inside of that just gets you. <laughs> Doesn't that seem like it, it seems like that's the same on like pirates. On Pirates of the Caribbean too, when you have the, the um when you have like a roller coaster kind of drop that you almost get wetter on that sometimes than you do on the big drop on Splash. Right, yeah. I mean, if you're if you're sitting up front and and on one of the edges on the drop down there into Pirates, yeah, the, yeah. the splashback really gets you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thanks for joining us, joining me for uh, this little quarantine chat and teaching us all about a little bit more history of Splash Mountain um, and the origins of the thanks. stories and. and kind of everything that goes along with it. Thanks for having me. Um, love the podcast. Love that you're back doing this. Um, I'm trying to, I was I was driving when I think going to get dinner um, when you first kind of re-picked it back up and I remember getting that notification on my phone because it's one of like two podcasts that <laughs> And I listen to a lot of podcasts, to be clear. But it's one of, like, two podcasts that I have notifications on on my phone because I was just waiting for it to come back. And I'm oh, glad man. that it's back. I'm glad that I got to come on and, you know, share a little bit of my interest in history and interest in the parks. Um, and obviously take some time talking to you, Paul. Oh, man, that's that's really kind of you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Let's Let's figure out another time to to do another history episode. This is really cool and really fun and, and really eye-opening too, in a lot of ways. Sounds great, you let me know. Well, thank you for listening to the Unmistakably Magic Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that one. Um, there was an error in this episode and I want to address it now rather than have to address it later um, but we or I should say Wade going to throw him under the bus a little bit here um, but we had we had said that James Basket uh, was the first African American to win an Oscar however that was not true he, he was the first African American male to win um, the first African American to win was uh, Hattie McDaniel, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, um, with her role in Gone with the Wind. She won, like, Best Supporting Actress, and that was before Song of the South and before James Basket. However, it is still a very historical event. Um, but with that being said, thank you for listening to the Unmistakably Magic podcast. I hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, it was a lot of fun to make. It was really fun diving into the history of... An attraction that doesn't really get talked about a whole lot, shockingly so. It seems like it's such a popular attraction, but not everybody really talks about it, or nobody really talks about it. And, I mean, everybody always goes into the history of, like, It's a Small World, or the Carousel of Progress, but you never really hear about the history of Splash Mountain and, 
and why it was built. So it was really cool and really, really fun to jump into the history of it and learn myself um, kind of why it was built and, and the history around all of uh, the Song of the South and the fascinating, cool history with that that, I don't know, really doesn't get talked a lot, uh, talked about a lot. Um, so I hope you all enjoyed it. And if you did, let me know. Uh, shoot me an email at unmistakablymagic at gmail.com. Go follow me on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at unmistakablymagic on all of those, except for Twitter, where we're at unmistakablymag. Uh, you can find all of our old episodes over on YouTube. Just search unmistakablymagic. And once again, if you had any comments, questions, concerns, anything like that, or if you want to reach re- reach out to us in any way, shape, or form, just do that on any of our socials or shoot us an email at unmistakablymagic at gmail.com. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, seriously, let me know. I will I will create more and we will we will make this a more regular thing of lots more history shows. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and I hope I was able to to shed some light and share a little little insight as to why Splash Mountain is where it is in Disneyland and and why it's so popular and so shrouded in mystery. Uh, but with that being said, that just about wraps it up this week. I hope you have a magical week, and I'll see you real soon. <laughs> 